All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 8 and starting at verse 1. And if you don't have your Bibles, we have some Bibles we'd like to give you back there. And you don't need to have any shame because that's the one I'm using today. So um, you're actually cool if you use this, I guess that means. Um, So actually, I gave up on cool in my early 20s when male pattern baldness set in. So Um, it's actually really liberating not to have to feel the pressure to be cool anymore. Okay, um, let's uh, read from Scripture. Mark uh, chapter 8. Verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away, And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Damanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousands, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of the broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And then they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he 
sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Let's pray. Lord, help us today to see you more clearly and to know you as we study your word together. Amen. Well, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Scott. I'm one of the elders here, and occasionally I share in the preaching, teaching rotation. Um, I want to talk today about something important, spiritual blindness, and by natural association, spiritual awareness. In order to get a bead on my audience, though, I'm going to ask you all to take a quick awareness test for me, okay? Now, this is a warning. In order to do well on the test, you must give this your undivided attention, okay? For uh, those of you who might have testing anxiety, don't worry. Um, This should be no problem for you because, after all, we live in a generation known for its focus and awareness and ability to make keen judgments, especially here in Southern California. So I'm sure you all do fine. Um, So let's go ahead and have our awareness test up here. This is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? The answer is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear? out for cyclists, it was, uh, especially in downtown Fullerton. I almost got nailed about a month ago on the way to church. Um, all right, so I'm sure you guys know exactly where I'm going to go with this. We all just watched the same video, okay? And most, if not all of us, were completely unaware of the most remarkable and conspicuous thing on the screen, uh, the moonwalking bear. Now, if this is how unaware our own surest sense, sense perception of sight, if this is how unaware that can be, how much more unaware might we be spiritually? To put it another way, to what extent are we as aware, knowledgeable, self-sufficient 21st century people, most of whom have all the knowledge in the world in our pocket, Missing the moonwalking bears of eternal significance. Uh, Now, at Grace, we recognize that God's word, the Bible, contains the enduring truths that ought to be our focus and bring us our salvation. In our sermon series, we often pick a book and, and preach through it, knowing that this is what the Lord wants us to hear And we value expository preaching through the Bible. So here we find ourselves in chapter 8 of Mark. We see um, an interesting uh, trajectory thus far where we really focus on the king part of the king and the cross. And we're about to get to the penultimate moment here when 
when Peter recognizes Jesus as the king. At some point, he gains this profound awareness, and that's going to be next week. But in the preceding chapter, this uh, preceding parts of this chapter, I want to focus on a motif woven throughout the whole thing, and that is the motif of a lack of awareness or blindness. Varying degrees of blindness, which in total reveal to us significant truths about how people see Jesus, not only in ancient Galilee, but today. We will see how the degree of blindness leads them to act in his presence. We'll see their lack of faith, and ultimately we'll see how Jesus wants us to see him. So you'll see in your bulletin, I provide you an outline under three points. The eyes of the proud, the eyes of the disciples, and the eyes that see Jesus. I'm going to go ahead and begin talking uh, about verse 11 and following, and then I'll weave in uh, the earlier passage, 1 through 10, uh, later. So look at me, look with me at verse 11 of Mark 8. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat, and went to the other side. What do we know thus far in chapters 1 through 8 about Pharisees? Just call it out. What do we know about the Pharisees? They're threatened by Jesus. Good. They're, yep, they're, they're plotting against him. Absolutely. Anything else? Yeah. All right, they aren't necessarily being honest. They have ulterior motive. Anything else? Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, I think they were some of the ones that protected the law, the um, Jewish law from the Romans, and were actually seen in quite a positive light by a lot of the Jews. Yeah, they were the religious leaders. They were the protectors in, uh, of the law and, and thereby the culture in lots of ways. And we've also seen a lot of antagonism uh, between them and Jesus because Jesus is undermining so much of what they've added to the law particularly and so much of what they are assuming about people who are not clean like they are. Now, where we are in this context is in a Gentile region. So in, in some sense, this might be a different set of Pharisees. It's not the same guys following them around. But still... Pharisees very much function in Mark like stock characters do in a movie. They kind of show up and have kind of the same uh, attitude. And in this case, we see uh, kind of a different motif emerge, and that is the idea of a sign from heaven. We see that they're going to be demanding a particular kind of sign. Now, this might strike you as odd because... We know from Mark's gospel that basically that's what Jesus has been doing the whole time. He's been offering again and again proof of who he is, what he's come to do. And we've seen miracles again and again. So consider uh, the miracle of the paralytic in chapter 2, uh, starting with verse 11. He says, I say to you, rise and pick up your bed and go home. 
Well, why did he say that? Because he said, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. There we see Jesus' miracle tied to his authority in a very transparent way that could undermine, undermine the uh, authority of the religious leaders of the time. You know, it's helpful to look at when Jesus inaugurated his ministry. Uh, in Luke chapter 4, uh, Jesus reads the prophecy from Isaiah, uh, showing that his ministry fulfills scripture. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So clearly, Jesus is making it no secret that he has a special kind of authority. Um, he's fulfilling prophecy. And he is accompanying these things with miracles, which we could call signs. So at first blush, it's outrageous that these guys would come and ask for any sign at all. It seems an odd demand to verify that Jesus is a man with power. And the reality beneath this is that they were digging around not for just any old sign, but a sign from heaven. And this particular sign has some Old Testament precedents, specifically when God is going to do a great work of deliverance for his people. So we see this in stories like uh, Gideon and the fleece, where Gideon asks for a specific miraculous outcome to confirm that God will make good on his promise. Or in 2 Kings 20, Hezekiah asks Isaiah to move a shadow uh, back 10 steps to confirm that God will deliver the king from sickness. So these Pharisees, having this in mind, uh, they're living in a Gentile region. And they're seeking for a specific sign from heaven. And it's a sign of deliverance, but a particular kind of deliverance. They are testing Jesus to see if he will conform to their social political agenda. Here's someone who's coming and saying the kingdom of God is at hand. And that means something very particular to these guys. And what does this question provoke in Jesus? Well, for the second time in the last two chapters, a deep sigh. But added to that, a stern rebuke. He says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Jesus' phrasing is significant here. It, the phrase, this generation, in the Old Testament, almost always refers to something evil. Someone wicked. A group of people who are going away from what God wants. Now, two weeks ago, Gerald pointed this out in his sermon, that there is a particular way that Jesus recognizes evil in the Pharisees. He recognizes that though they are clean and pristine and perfect and set apart and holy on the outside, that they are rotten on the inside. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, no sign will be given. We've seen this formulation before. Jesus, unlike other teachers, speaks on his own authority. When Jesus says this, he's saying, on my own authority, I'm telling you this. Whenever we see this truly I say to you construction, he's making them a promise. You aren't getting a sign from me. 
not the kind you want. I think it's helpful to look at uh, the Matthew passage where we see this similar description. In Matthew 16, 4, Jesus says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah, the prophet who was swallowed up into the belly of a fish, only to reappear three days later. Well, we know on this side of uh, Revelation that Jesus uh, has fulfilled that, but they have no idea. Why did Jesus sigh, though? He's moved, moved in a particular way. Surely it's an emotion of righteous indignation, but also of lamentation. Here are the spiritual leaders of the Jewish people, the ones who are supposed to draw men to God, the ones who are supposed to bring awareness of God's eternal abiding truth. But they're making demands that show that Jesus is subordinate to their agenda. Demands that Jesus be who they want him to be. That Jesus prove that he's going to save their people to free them from captivity, to deliver them out from under the burden of the oppressors. If only they knew they were blind. This whole passage calls to mind Jesus' lamentation in Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as, hens, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Pharisees are simply not willing to follow Jesus or accept him on Jesus' terms. They won't accept him on faith based on his authority and his signs and his healings. Last week, Dave Talley introduced an important motif in the book of Mark. The enfolding of the Gentiles into the great Abrahamic blessing we see in Genesis. Chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. Now listen to this blessing. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Why does Jesus sigh so deeply here? The very heart of God's blessing his people was being disgraced by the leaders of his people. Jesus is now the physical embodiment of God's blessing to the Gentiles by giving himself to them along with the, the Jews. But the Pharisees' hearts are far from God. They are blind to this and they can't see it. The only part of the blessing that they want to have any association with would be the being part of a great nation or having a great name. The outward appearances of the blessing, not the part of the blessing that says that they are going to be a blessing. They honor themselves, but no one else. We see a callous blindness here. We have a highly educated group here people who know their scriptures inside and out, people who pay meticulous attention 
to their detailed conformity to God's law, on the surface they are squeaky clean and unblemished. They're chosen, but inside they are faithless and they don't even see it. God does not look at the outward appearance we know from Scripture. He looks at the heart. And yet they ask for a sign. And they think they're completely justified too. The Pharisees' eyes are not the only eyes that lack faith, however. The second set of eyes that we see in this passage are the eyes of the disciples. This passage is quite typically marked. It reintroduces similar themes and even uh, narrative threads that we've seen before. This is the third time in eight chapters that we've seen a boat scene. Now think about that. Mark is the shortest gospel. He moves from point to point to point, story, and doesn't take too much time. He had three years of source material, and he gives us three boat scenes that are almost identical in structure and reaction. This was not coincidental. He's showing us something here. If we look back in chapter 4, starting with verse 25, we can see that Jesus calms the sea. But then he rebukes the disciples for their lack of faith. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Two questions. The answer, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? It's a strange juxtaposition. Amazement and faithlessness at the same time. The second time the disciples are on a boat occurs in chapter 6. And Jesus casually walks by them on the water. And guess what? The disciples are afraid. Jesus calms them saying, take heart. It is not I, or it is I. Do not be afraid. Mark, Mark then tells us that he got into the boat with them. And the wind ceased, and they were utterly astonished in fear and amazement. It says their hearts were hardened because they did not understand about the loaves. Now in chapter 8, once again, we see a similar construction. There is a faithlessness, this time not as dramatic, but the disciples are looking for for bread and, and trying to Figure out who forgot it. Why the three passages? Why this uh, reminder several times? Why the repetition? Well, I think it's pretty important to look at what happened before each of these boat journeys to see uh, if we can uh, gather any clues. So let's go back. Before Jesus calms the storm... He immediately before that tells the audience two parables about the nature of the kingdom of God. How it will burst forth like grains growing uh, who knows how big into a harvest. How the kingdom will spread and grow like crazy. And then he follows up with the parable of the mustard seed. How this one tiny Eensy, teensy little seed will grow exponentially into a tree with large branches that will provide homes and shade and rest for the birds of the air. Immediately before Jesus walks on the water, we see the feeding of the 5,000. A few fish, 
a few loaves of bread, and yet baskets were left over. And at the beginning of chapter 8, our current passage, we again see the feeding of the 4,000. Not Jews this time, but Gentiles. Immediately before each of these boat journeys, we see a description of something. A description of God's kingdom. And what do we know about God's kingdom? It grows exponentially. It explodes in size. It multiplies in orders of magnitude. And immediately after that, they're in a boat, and they just don't get it. They're amazed. They're with him. They're not shaking their fists at him at all. But there's fear. There's a lack of, a, of faith. There's worry. There are lots of parallels in these scenes, but one I want to really focus in is back in chapter 6, verse 52. Mark tells us this. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And then here in our current passage, chapter 8, 19 through 21, we have several questions all centering around the loaves. And he says to them, did you not understand? Do you not yet understand? Clearly, the disciples aren't getting it. But what I think is interesting that Jesus could have said something, did you not understand, about any number of miracles, any number of prophecies fulfilled, any number of interactions with people. But he comes back to the loaves. There's something unique about the loaves that Jesus wants them to understand. For the disciples, the loaves are a moonwalking bear. They just don't see, they don't see it. They're looking for and at something else. If you look over at Mark chapter 8, and specifically verse 14, it says, Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. Then verse 17 says, And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Seems odd. They come to the boat with no bread. Jesus reminds them, Why are you discussing that you have no bread? But we have this one little detail in verse 14. They had only one loaf with them in the boat. Well, where'd that come from? I mean, there are a couple possibilities. We don't know where this boat came from. Someone could have left a loaf of bread in the boat. Um, and they could have thought, well, that's not enough for all of us, certainly. Or it could be that Mark is pointing us to something that's really important. That Jesus is the bread of life. Remember the parable of the sower? What is the seed? The seed is the word of God. Who is Jesus? The word made flesh. Listen to these words as John recalls them in John chapter 6, verse 48 through 51. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. 
This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 17. The cup of blessings that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, in these passages, it's really clear to us what's going on we might arrive at a very simple conclusion. These guys are idiots. <laughs> right? How could they not get it? I want to caution us against that kind of thinking. First of all, we have the empty tomb that they didn't have. And we have God's Holy Spirit who reveals stuff that they didn't have. How could they have gotten it? The truth is we are much more, even with all that knowledge, we are much more like the disciples probably than we let on. How often do we, being sure of our faith in Jesus, sure of our assurance, sure that he is for us and with us, how easily do we get derailed by the smallest thing in life? Very easily. Very easily. They don't see that he is the bread of life. And probably because he's a different kind of bread than they're familiar with. They don't recognize that the kingdom that he's establishing is a kingdom that will grow and multiply by his sacrifice. That everything comes from him in the building of this kingdom. So the blindness of the disciples is a blindness of Jesus' true intent and purpose. He's taught them parables. He's even told them what the parables mean. But they don't get it. They have a sort of spiritual amnesia. To have some clarity about something that immediately lose grasp of it. They're with Jesus, and that's a good place to be. But they are adrift of Jesus' true identity and purpose. They're, in a sense, blind. Following this passage is the healing of a blind man. We move swiftly in this chapter from the uh, miracle of compassion involving thousands to here a miracle of compassion involving one. I don't want us to lose sight of that, that Jesus both loves the many but loves the one. We've seen several healings in Mark, and this one is in some ways similar to the others. And in, in, in other ways, it's unique. Like the healing of the deaf man in chapter 7, people bring this afflicted blind man to Jesus. In the same way, Jesus leads both the deaf man and the blind man away from the crowds. But this, this particular miracle is unique in the Gospel of Mark in one way. Jesus' healing of the man is a 
curious two-step process. Given this miracle's unique structure, some have tried to draw some allegorical significance out of it, suggesting that uh, some way this man's two-step process of seeing uh, maps onto the lives of the disciples. There's debate about that. But what I want to focus on most is the real plain thing. What does this narrative show us at face value and in the context of this passage as a whole? At face value, this narrative shows us Jesus' immense personal compassion, a sharp contrast to his corporate compassion early in the chapter. We know precious little about this blind man. We can assume that at one point he could see because he says he sees trees at some point. Um, We don't know too much about the people who uh, cared enough about him to bring him to Jesus, but we do know this, they begged him to heal this man. Just like the friends of the deaf man begged him. Just like the Syrophoenician woman begged him. Here in this Gentile territory, we see these people coming to Jesus with nothing, begging for mercy on Jesus' terms. Please help us. And what does Jesus do? grabs the man by the hand. He responds to their plea and leads the man by the hand, guiding him to a place where he would heal him by touching his eyes with his hands after first applying his own saliva to the man's eyes. He'd interact with the man, showing concern, almost like a physician would. By contrast to the list of questions Jesus has about blindness To his disciples in the preceding passage, we just see one question. Do you see anything? Jesus touched him once with his hands, touched him again. And moments later, this man looked up and surely he looked and saw his friends clearly. But surely he looked at Jesus and saw everything clearly. This passage calls to mind Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7. Listen to this as I read this to you. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, From the prison, those who sit in darkness. Jesus the Lord leads the blind by the hand. You know, the Pharisees were right. Jesus was a deliverer. But so much more than they could ever imagine. What a beautiful and personal and intimate description this is. When Jesus is in the boat with his disciples earlier, he asks his disciples two important questions. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? So how do we map this onto our own lives? You know, the most obvious difference between the physical blindness 
of the blind man and the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees and disciples is the blind man knows he's blind. He knows it. And blind people can't just unblind themselves. He needs help. Imagine that, not knowing that you are blind. How scary a thought. One of my favorite books has an illustration in it that I think would be helpful. Um, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek by Annie Dillard is a book that um, I've taught. I'm a high school teacher. And among other things, she deals with the topic of blindness. It's, it's a strange book. It's kind of a collection of essays that are kind of biology and kind of spirituality. Um, and high school juniors hate it. Um, but at one point, Dillard recounts the story of Henry Faber, a French entomologist, and his study of some blind moth caterpillars called pine processionaries. So if we could get a picture. Anyone ever seen something like that? A group of caterpillars just following each other? These caterpillars are blind. Each night they climb up pine trees following shiny silken threads left by the caterpillar in front of them in search for food. Now, at one point, studying them in a lab setting, Faber interferes with a group of these blind little caterpillars, and something horrifying happens. Dillard describes the process like this. Faber catches them on a daytime exploration, approaching a circular track, the rim of a wide palm vase in his greenhouse. When the leader of the insect train completes a full circle, Faber removes the caterpillars, still climbing the vase, and brushes away all extraneous silken tracks. Now he has a closed circuit of caterpillars, leaderless, trudging round his vase on a never-ending track. He wants to see how long it will take them to catch on. To his horror, they march on not just an hour or so, but all day. When Faber leaves the greenhouse at night, they are still tracing that wearying circle, although night is the time they usually feed. In the chill of the next morning, they are deadly still. When they rouse themselves, they resume what Faber calls their imbecility. Over nine days, Faber watches them starve. Some accidentally stumble off the thread, but blind and aimless, they wander back. Faber even tries to place some pine needles, their food, a few inches away, but they never find the food. Faber states, the caterpillars in distress, starved, shelterless, chilled with cold, and night cling obstinately to the silk ribbon covered hundreds of times because they lack the rudimentary glimmers of reason which would advise them to abandon it. Reflecting on this horror, uh, Dillard describes the plight of these blind caterpillars like this. She says, it is motion without direction, force without power, the aimless procession of caterpillars round the rim of a vase, and I hate it because at any moment I might step to that charmed and glistening thread. Jesus entered into the world because without him, we are all on a charmed and glistening thread. 
inside all of us, we have this sense that we are justified by the things we do. In fact, at the heart of every religion in the world lies this central truth. We must rely on works to absolve ourselves of the things we've done wrong. And if we are not religious, we still try to justify ourselves by image or association. It's unavoidable. It's human. But here's the good news. The news that separates Christianity from every other faith. When we accept Jesus as our Savior, we are justified by the only works that count. We are justified by His works. The perfect obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is showing us that He has the authority to forgive sin based on His own own work, not our work. And the Pharisees and disciples don't see it. They don't get it. They want to provide their own bread. But the people who have been sitting under Jesus' teaching, they have nothing and they're starving and he gives them bread. The blind man knows that he's blind. And they know that Jesus, he knows that Jesus frees them. Now, if you have not accepted the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, you, like everyone else, without Jesus, are stuck on a glistening thread, trying to eke out your own existence, trying to make it on your own, but you are starving. And even if you know Jesus, you can still operate in a mindset that something else justifies you. It's very easy. It might be a justification drawn from how open-minded you are, how committed to a cause you are, It might be a justification, if you're like me, that deals with status and achievement, the praise of men. It might even be a justification of your unwavering adherence to traditional morals and values that are good things. We need to be watchful. For our hearts always search for something to justify ourselves. And it's so easily to step onto that charmed and glistening thread. Another question. How should we treat blind men? As Christians, we oftentimes think in categories of uh, believers and non-believers. This week in preparing for this, I've been thinking about in categories of seeing and blind. I had a blind student this semester, and I completely reorganized my room so that this student could learn from me. I moved furniture. We had Braille materials. Anything I give to a a student in print, I had to prepare and take time uh, and communicate with the Braillers to get it in Braille. Anything that was on the board, I spoke out loud. I had uh, one of my students help um, intervene if there was confusion. It It was some work to help this blind student, but she learned and she did well. We need to tell the blind that there's good news. Seven year, 700 years before Jesus was born, before he lived the perfect life that we should have lived and died the death we all deserve, the prophet Isaiah said this, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf 
unstopped. So this is your awareness test. Do you see that Jesus is the king? That he is building an imperishable kingdom that even now might seem blurry, but will one day be as clear as day. Do you see that he is the bread that is broken and offered to all, Jew and Gentile, Syrophoenician and Roman, clean and unclean, old and young, male and female, in every color and shape and size and socioeconomic status represented in this room? Are you aware of your own tendency to forget this? And are you aware that you have a Savior who even now desires to lead you by the hand and to keep you? Let's pray. Lord, help us to see you more clearly and to glorify your name. Amen.